Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the G7 summit underway in Hiroshima, Japan, and examine the inescapable symbolism of Hiroshima summoning the issue of nuclear weapons to the forefront, even if the summit's agenda is largely about Ukraine, climate change, and countering China's more assertive foreign policy. Joining us to discuss what is likely to happen with Saturday's visit by the world leaders to the Peace Memorial Museum, which shows the scale of the tragedy when the U.S. dropped a nuclear bomb in 1945, killing 140,000 people, is Mark Fitzpatrick, an associate fellow for strategy, technology and arms control and the former executive director of the Washington-based America's Office of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, as well as the former head of the Institute's work on nonproliferation. He served as a U.S. Foreign Service officer from 1979 to 2005 with postings in Seoul, Tokyo, Wellington, Vienna and Washington, including as Acting Deputy Assistant Secretary for Nonproliferation. And his books include Asia's Latent Nuclear Powers, Japan, South Korea and Taiwan, Overcoming Pakistan's Nuclear Dangers and the Iranian Nuclear Crisis, Avoiding Worst-Case Outcomes. Then we'll discuss the reason why Biden is cutting short his overseas trip, which has already had damaging foreign policy consequences because of extortion by House radicals threatening to destroy the economy, and speak with Dean Baker, senior economist and co-founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, a progressive economic think tank based in Washington, D.C., He's the author of Rigged, How Globalization and the Rules of the Modern Economy Were Structured to Make the Rich Richer, and writes the popular economics blog, Beat the Press, where he has an article, Will Biden Invoke the 14th? We'll explore Biden's options if the House Freedom Caucus refuses to compromise on a deal, which many Democrats argue Biden should not be negotiating in the first place. Then finally, we'll look into concerns about Senator Feinstein's ability to carry out her duties now that the Republicans refused her the courtesy of having a substitute senator sit in for her on committees as she recovers from shingles. Joining us to discuss this and the issue of how Biden got into the position that he's negotiating with legislative terrorists and speak with David Dayen, the executive editor of The American Prospect, the winner of the Ida and Studs Turkle Prize, He's the author of Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud, and Fat Cat, The Steve Mnuchin Story. And his latest book is Monopolized, Life in the Age of Corporate Power. We will discuss his latest articles at The American Prospect, The Narrative Shift of the Debt Ceiling Fight, and The Feinstein Affair, Senate Gerontocracy Reaches Absurd Heights. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, 
your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org. Contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Mark Fitzpatrick, an Associate Fellow for Strategy, Technology and Arms Control and a former Executive Director of the Washington-based America's Office of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, as well as a former head of the Institute's work on nonproliferation. He served as a U.S. Foreign Service Officer from 1979 to 2005, with postings in Seoul, Tokyo, Wellington, Vienna, and Washington, including as Acting Deputy Assistant Secretary for Nonproliferation. And his books include Asia's Latent Nuclear Powers, Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan, Overcoming Pakistan's Nuclear Dangers, and The Iranian Nuclear Crisis, Avoiding Worst-Case Outcomes. Welcome to Background Briefing, Mark Fitzpatrick. Thanks, Ian. Happy to talk to you again. Well, thanks for joining us, Mark. And uh, it's hard not to notice a certain subtext in the G7 meeting, uh, the fact that the Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida chose Hiroshima as the site for the summit. Uh, he, of course, represented Hiroshima in the Japanese parliament, and his family comes from there, and his, his grandmother survived the atomic bombing, which killed about 140,000 people, at least at the time, but is subsequently responsible for about 334,000 deaths that have been attributed to the after-effects. So I take it that on Friday they're all going to go to the memorial there, which has some really powerful artifacts, you know, like children's bento boxes and scorched tricycles and stuff like that. How much is the issue of nuclear weapons are going to be a part of the agenda, do you think? I don't think nuclear weapons will be a major part of the G7 agenda. There are um, much more pressing issues on their plate, Ukraine looming largest. Of course, there's a nuclear backdrop to the Ukraine crisis, but it's not the, the main issue. But I think the symbolism of holding the summit in Hiroshima of visiting the um, Hiroshima Peace Museum, which um, is very powerful. I went there as a 17-year-old, and it really shaped my future in a way. I think that really plays to um, one of Japan's uh, strengths of its uh, promotion of peace, of disarmament, while it still uh, maintains its close allegiance to the United States and remains under the U.S. nuclear umbrella. So the president, of course, is not going to apologize. He was uh, Some Japanese parliamentarians have asked him to apologize, and the same earlier when Obama visited Hiroshima came up. But it's a little puzzling, given that Ukraine is very much on the agenda, and Vladimir Putin has been threatening to use tactical nuclear weapons regularly, and the far-right nationalists that are pushing him to be even more brutal are also calling for the use of nuclear weapons. It's a very strange situation that throughout the Cold War you had mutually assured destruction, which restrained both the Soviet Union and the United States from using nuclear weapons. But now the, Putin is, is using the mad doctrine as a kind of shield behind which he conducts a conventional war, and he rattles the nuclear saber in order to make 
the populations in the United States and particularly in Germany and NATO countries squeamish about supporting Ukraine because it could possibly lead to the use of nuclear weapons. And it's purely a propaganda tool that he's using, but it's having a real effect. So, and of course, you know, we've been very cautious, at least Jake Sullivan has in delivering arms uh, because of the fear of escalating things with Russia. So, I mean, <laughs> I'm not making the case that supporting the ban of nuclear weapons is actually helping Putin. Obviously not. But how do you think that's not being navigated? Yeah, I think you've expressed it pretty well, uh, Ian. Um, certainly, Putin was rattling his nuclear saber in order to um, remind adversaries of um, his powerful weapons. And um, certainly Russia's uh, nuclear arsenal is is the reason why the United States has proceeded cautiously in slowly um, providing Ukraine weapons to defend itself. And it's used them very well in that defense, but not giving Ukraine weapons with which it could attack attack Russia itself. That's been a prudent uh, policy, and it's worked uh, pretty well to, to keep um, us on the conventional side of the equation and not provoking Putin to go nuclear. Your your question, though, about the Hiroshima imagery and whether this uh, plays somehow into Putin's propaganda, I don't think so. Uh, I think actually it, it, it can be helpful. Um, look, we all know that Russia has nuclear weapons. We don't need to be reminded of it. Uh, the nuclear uh, saber rattling doesn't really um, increase um the way that the United States and its allies um, uh, defend uh, themselves and their, their partners. But making Hiroshima uh, a focal point of the G Summit Summit, I think helps to remind the world of the barbarity of nuclear weapons and the pledge that um, major countries have uh, taken, including Putin himself, just before he invaded Ukraine, that nuclear weapons um, uh, should never be used. He made that pledge. I think that reminding the world of uh, about the dangers of nuclear weapons will help ensure that Putin doesn't use them in Ukraine. Because if he were to use them, countries that are either supporting him like China or sitting on the fence like India and South Africa and Brazil would have a moral imperative to um, to go against him. So he would lose the world if he used nuclear weapons. And uh, you know, Hiroshima's imagery will, I think, help reinforce that moral posture. So is it possible, do you think, or likely that at the uh, peace memorial on Saturday, President Biden will meet with some of the aging Hibakushas, uh, the survivors of the uh, Hiroshima ta attack? Yeah, I think it's a it's a kind of a normal, um, you, know, you know, thing that um, that visitors do when they go to Hiroshima is to meet Hibakusha, uh, the survivors. And uh, you know, I, I was reading something the other day. Biden is about the same age as some of those survivors. They were children when the bomb was dropped. And I, you know, Biden is a very empathetic uh, individual, a politician. He he exudes empathy and. I think that him meeting with Hibaksha will 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 be a good um, uh, image of America's 
uh, friendship with Japan, its understanding of the dangers of nuclear weapons, and its a, a determination uh, to see that they are not used again. So just turning to your book, Mark, Asia's Latent Nuclear Powers, Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan, Japan is probably, of all of the potentially nuclear weapons countries, would have the quickest breakout, wouldn't they? Because they've got an awful lot of uh, plutonium. Yes, Japan um, would have the quickest uh, breakout, um, <laughs> except for now Iran, which has uh, a, a quite a, a, a great deal of um, enriched uranium and is judged to be within 12 days of having enough uh, fissile material for a nuclear weapon. It would still have to weaponize it, but it's already done work on that. Japan has not done any work on weaponization so far as as is known. And it's a very open country. I think we the world would know if it had been conducting uh, such uh, work, and it, it, it just hasn't. So my estimate that it, is that if Japan um, uh, put a metal, <laughs> metal to pedal, it would um, be able to get a, a, a crude nuclear weapon in about a, a year. As you say, it's got a lot of plutonium. It has uh, um, a lot of uh, nuclear scientists who, um, if they were put to weapons use, could, could help out a lot. But they actually are very opposed to nuclear weapons. Japan's uh, scientific establishment is very peace-oriented. So Japan would have to go through a massive uh, shift of, of thinking uh, to go down a nuclear weapons path. It's not just the technology, it's the uh, the way that, that people approach this. Um, Japan would have to be faced with a massive new threat to, to, to change its policy on nuclear weapons. So how do the Japanese people deal with the threat from North Korea? Because all North Korea has is nuclear weapons. I mean, uh, it's just a total basket case in every in every respect. And, you know, it resorts to criminality in order to, uh, I mean, they've been doing the biggest crypto scams of all around the world, making billions out of crypto scams. So it's a complete basket case, but it's a dangerous country. Run, oh, it's very know. dangerous. And you've, you've mentioned the only two things that North Korea is good at is producing uh, dangerous weapons and, um, and criminality, crypto, um, crypto cybercrime. You mentioned Japan uh, was one of the, the biggest victims of North Korea's uh, cybercrime. How does Japan respond to the, the North Korean nuclear threat? Uh, there was concern uh, when uh, North Korea first tested uh, nuclear weapons that this could spark Japan to think that it needed nuclear weapons in, in its uh, defense. But instead, uh, Japan reinforced its security alliance with the United States, realizing that that would be its best um, security guarantee. And the United States has taken many steps to reinforce that security guarantee. So Japan is not spooked by North Korea. They're, they're, they're very concerned about North Korea, but they have a variety of reasons to be concerned. You know, the one we haven't talked about yet is um, North Korea's history of abducting uh, Japanese nationals. This is a very big issue in Japan, and it's, it's one of the many ways that North Korea is a bad actor that has violated norms. And in response to that, uh, Japan um, has its alliance with the United States, its partnership with other countries, and uh, thinks that that's the best way to, um, to keep North Korea at bay. So one of the things that I find extraordinary about this G7 summit in Hiroshima, Japan, Mark, is um, that 
the the crazies in the house, the so-called Freedom Caucus, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greens, uh, who have enormous sway over House Speaker McCarthy. I mean, we know that they're incredibly anti-Chinese, but at the same time, they're helping China because Biden had to cut short his G7 trip and he was supposed to go to Australia for a quad summit with the leader of the Prime Minister of Japan, uh, the Prime Minister of, of India and Biden and, of course, the Australian Prime Minister. And they had a, were preparing this big deal for the quad. And the quad's basic existence is, is to contain China or at least to defend itself against uh, what they consider to be a more aggressive China. And that got cancelled. So I find it extraordinary to think that Marjorie You're Taylor right. Green is right. working for the Chinese. Um, and she's too damn stupid to know. And that's only the, begi- the, the beginning. Uh, Ian, I guess you're Australian by birth and, and upbringing, so you would focus on the uh, cancelling of the uh, Australia part of the trip and the reinforcement of the Quad. But that's not the worst of it, because Biden can meet with the Quad leaders in Japan, and, um, and the Quad is, is on the right path. But he also cancelled a stopover in Papua New Guinea, which was just supposed to be for three hours, but it was a very significant stopover. No U.S. president has ever been to Papua New Guinea. And there he was going to meet with um, other Pacific Island um, uh, country leaders. And, and, And a big part of that, actually the main part of it, was to balance China's growing influence in the Pacific Islands. You know, China uh, had the secret deal with the Solomon Islands recently. So there's this competition in in the Pacific that China has kind of been winning and the United States needs to get back in the game. And by going to Papua New Guinea, the first US presidential visit was a way of showing the flag, as we say in diplomacy, and uh, and reinforcing America's um, ties there. So uh, cutting that out, really um, reverses the gains and actually it's even worse. So so China does win. And thanks to Marjorie Taylor Greene and those, um, uh, well, yeah, those others who have uh, exerted this, um, uh, you know, gun to the head of the uh, U.S. economy by threatening not to extend the debt limit. So the other issue, and we've mentioned it, uh, but what the G7 are going to do about Ukraine ahead of this uh, expected offensive it looks as though certainly the British and the Dutch leaders are pressuring Biden to allow Ukraine to get F-16 fighters. And the pattern has always been from the very beginning of this war over a year ago that the U.S. says, no, you can't have this. And then a few months later, they eventually deliver to Ukraine. I mean, take the example being the tanks, you know, for the longest time they said, no, you can't have tanks. And then they eventually relinquish. And now they're doing the same with F-16s. The British apparently have deployed some advanced missiles. And I'm wondering, you know, what's happening there. It's odd to have the have the Europeans having putting pressure on the Americans to pony up when it's been America from the beginning that's been the biggest supporter of Ukraine. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned that last point, because it is odd if Europe is being seen as the uh, major defender of Ukraine and, and uh, needing to um, uh, you know, get the United States to do its part. The United States has been you know, more than doing its part. If you look at, at the aid, military aid to Ukraine, um, the United States is far ahead of anyone else. 
and not just gross, but in a, on a per capita basis, uh, United uh, Kingdom is is the next in a, a per capita basis, and it's only half of what the United States uh, spends. So there's two parts of this. You know, it's it's uh, how much uh, how much aid and what kind of military aid, and then the and the how much aid uh, is related to the second because items like F-16s are tremendously expensive. So if the United States starts providing its F-16s, um, they're going to eat up a large of the budget that has so far been allocated uh, for Ukraine. So I recently read an analysis um, by um, Pentagon analysts about, you know, considering what equipment Ukraine really needs to defend itself and to turn the tide of the battle to go on a counteroffensive and, and how much they all cost and so forth. And F-16s are not in the top five um, of, of the equipment that they judge Ukraine really needs. And besides which it takes time to uh, train Ukrainian pilots to fly them and you know to get them over there and so forth. So I think the F-16 is is a is a bit of a red herring. What uh, if other countries supply F-16s? Um, United States would have to give the go ahead to relax its export controls, and I think that's the next step. The United States probably will say yes to Poland and the Netherlands and Norway or anyone else who wants to wants to supply F-16s. Uh, to um, Ukraine. The United States will give uh, the green light to that, and then Ukraine will um, get the symbolic uh, air defenses that it needs, and they will help its air defense. And meanwhile, the United States will continue supplying other things and maybe go along with the United Kingdom in providing those longer range um, ar artillery uh, systems to be able to hit deep into um, uh, Russian held Ukrainian territory to help Ukraine um, on its counteroffensive. So, Mark, just in closing then, um, I guess we'll find out what happens on Saturday, but um, given the price that the U.S. has paid in terms of its foreign policy because of our domestic turmoil, largely because of the legislative terrorists, as John Boehner referred to them, <clears throat> on the Hill, what do you think at the end of the day will be the success of this this trip, given that Biden has to hurry back and try to make a deal to stop the crazies from defaulting on the American uh, economy, throwing us into a recession and destroying the value of the U.S. dollar as a global currency. Okay, so, um, Judgment, I think that in the main theater of attention, uh, Hiroshima, the summit, the G G7, and, and all that's associated with that will be a, a big plus for U.S. foreign policy because it will uh, reaffirm the uh, solidarity of the major um, economies of the world in um, supporting the United States, in supporting Ukraine, and uh, pledging more for it. Um, it'll demonstrate U.S. leadership. But... Um, in the secondary theater of Biden's other trips, um, you know that's that's obviously a minus. And you balance those two out, the United States still comes ahead. But I wish it was, I wish there wasn't that uh, detraction from the equation of um, of the loss of not going to Papua New Guinea in particular. Well, Mark Fitzpatrick, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Happy to talk to you again.
And again, I've been speaking with Mark Fitzpatrick, who's an associate fellow for strategy, technology, and arms control, and the former executive director of the Washington-based America's Office of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, as well as a former head of the Institute's work on nonproliferation. He served as a U.S. Foreign Service officer from 1979 to 2005, with postings in Seoul, Tokyo, Wellington, Vienna, and Washington, including as acting deputy assistant secretary for nonproliferation. And his books include Asia's Latent Nuclear Powers, Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan, Overcoming Pakistan's Nuclear Dangers, and The Iranian Nuclear Crisis, Avoiding Worst-Case Outcomes. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back exploring Biden's options if the House Freedom Caucus refuses to compromise on a deal which many Democrats argue Biden should not be negotiating in the first place. What will we tell them Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now are Dean Baker, Senior Economist and Co-Founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, a progressive economic think tank based in Washington, D.C. He's the author of Rigged, How Globalization and the Rules of the Modern Economy Were Structured to Make the Rich Richer. And he writes the popular economics blog, Beat the Press, where he has an article, Will Biden Invoke the 14th? Welcome to Background Briefing, Dean Baker. Well, thanks for joining us. And earlier on the program today, Dean, we were talking about the G7 meeting in Hiroshima, Japan, and the extent to which already the TPA, not well, they're called the Freedom Caucus now, have really damaged U.S. foreign policy. Uh, you've got people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who are hysterically opposed to China at the same time because of their hostage-taking and what Boehner referred to as legislative terrorism, they've uh, forced Biden to return early to negotiate with them over the debt ceiling, and in doing so, he's cancelled the Quad meeting in Australia with the leaders of Japan, India, Australia, and the United States, of course, which is designed as a a counterweight to China. So (laughs) there you have Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, helping China, so but she, of course, is too stupid to know that she's doing that. But uh, I was struck by your, your article where you say, I find it delicious that the wording on the debt in the 14th Amendment was put there to deal with pretty much exactly the situation we face today. A gang of former Confederates gained control of Congress and looked to wreck the economy to avenge their defeat in the Civil War, in this case, their defeat of Donald Trump, who, of course, they don't believe was defeated, bring him back. They don't care about destroying the American and global economy. That's going to help them, right? Uh, and to their mind, if there's a recession, uh, make it more likely that Trump will 
beat Biden in 2024? Yeah, whether it's that calculated, I don't know. I mean, I certainly wouldn't put that by them. Um, they must know this is really bad for the economy. I mean, they, they have to recognize that. And let's say we do get to the X date that people, the term people are using for when we can no longer pay the bills. And if we say Biden doesn't invoke the 14th Amendment, he goes, OK, we can't pay the bills. There'll be a calamitous event. Now, if it's six hours, you know, we'll get over that, you know, a, a, a day we'll get over that. But if it goes on for a week or two weeks, that, that'll be real consequences. And again, it's kind of it, it's just incredibly reckless that they would want to play this game. And we'll, we'll see how that plays out. But, you know, it's unfortunate Biden's negotiating with them. Is he going to make major concessions? I think many of us are worried about that. Um, it's uh, again, you have uh, they control one House of Congress, very narrow majority. And the idea that they're going to try to undo everything that Biden did in his first two years when he controlled both houses of Congress and, of course, the White House. It's just kind of incredible. So do you think that he's thinking of using the 14th Amendment? I mean, uh... well, let me put it this way. I know for certain he's looking into it now. Is that something that they're thinking like, OK, if I can't get a deal, we'll do this? I sure hope so. Um, and again, you know, I mentioned that it's kind of funny. I, I, I hadn't. Uh, going back to 2011, the last time you had this standoff with President Obama, um, many of us were talking about the idea of a platinum coin, which is something he could do. I mean, the law, at least to me, I'm not a lawyer, but it seems pretty clear on this. It says that the Treasury can print uh, platinum coins in any denomination. Um, any denomination where I come from means any denomination. So presumably a trillion dollars, give it to the Fed and say, OK, credit our account. Uh, problem over. Um, so they could do that. But with the 14th Amendment, again, I, I was familiar with the language. I was in high school. We read the Constitution. And I just thought, oh, they thought they'd put that in there just to remind everyone we pay our debts. And then I, I was reading some of the more recent scholarship. Well, I'm sure people have been writing this for years. And there was a very specific rationale for putting that in there. We just had the Civil War, of course. And <laughs> thankfully, the Confederacy was defeated. And they declared that all of the debts of the Confederacy will not null and void. So if you had a million dollars of Confederate debt, you're out of luck. I had, these were novelty items when I was a kid, maybe they still have them. You can get a million dollar bill in the Confederate currency for two cents, you know? So, so you know, that was null and void. So what they wanted to do was say, okay, you can't turn around. They understood the Confederates can get control of Congress. You can't turn around and suddenly say the debt's no good. So it very much is analogous to the situation we face today, where in effect you have the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the would-be Confederates, who want to say, "Hey, you know, we're gonna, we're not gonna let the government pay its bills. We're not gonna let them honor the debt." And too bad. Um, so it seems to me, uh, President Biden would certainly be every much in his right to say, "Look, the Fourteenth Amendment says our debts are good. We're gonna pay it, and we're sorry that you're not raising the debt ceiling." Congress told me to spend this money, I'm going to spend it. But unfortunately, the press have traded this largely as he said, she said, Biden's budget versus McCarthy's budget. And they haven't treated it in the context that you're dealing with legislative terrorists. And this is insane. And you don't it, negotiate it, it with It is terrorists. incredible. I mean, the, the whole point is Congress has appropriated this money. 
So you're in a situation, Congress wrote the laws, uh, obviously the Democrats, Biden had a role in that, but these are laws passed by Congress and the president is supposed to spend the money that Congress has told him to spend. So you then get this debt ceiling and they're saying, oh, in effect, the, the Republican side is, yeah, we know we told you to spend it, but we're not going to let you spend it. Um, it's it really is nonsense. And, you know, no other country does this. Denmark has a debt ceiling. I don't know the history on that, but it's the only other major country has a debt ceiling. But at this ridiculously high level that I suppose in 100 years they may hit or something. But it's not it's not something they have to deal with on an ongoing basis. I don't, I don't again, I don't know the specifics of how they got that, why they thought it was a good idea or whatever. But it's not something they have to worry about. So we're the only country that has this. Everyone else, you appropriate the money. If you're, you're not taxing enough, I mean, they could tax more if they want, but if you're not taxing enough to pay for it, then you borrow it, you know, and that's that's just the way it works. And if you're unhappy with it, you shouldn't have appropriated to begin with. So what did you make of uh, Paul Krugman's article about the coin, the platinum coin? Well, I think Krugman's exactly on the mark. It's, you know, people say it's a gimmick. Of course it's a gimmick, but it's it's better to use a gimmick then crash the world economy. So again, he's referring to this statute that was passed, I think it was in the 90s, might go back to the 80s, uh, that's of the last century, not the 1890s, where they said that treasury could print, print coins in any denomination and literally says any denomination. And I get a kick out of it because the uh, Republicans on Supreme Court are make a big point of saying, oh, we're literalist, we read exactly what's in the law. Well, any denomination means any denomination if you take that literally. So uh, it seems to me something that uh, the president could do and there wouldn't be. Uh, I'm sure they will try to challenge it. But I, uh, again, if they're following the law, if you have a law that says they could print a coin in any denomination, it seems to me that's following the law. So let's just, just sort of walk through what could happen on June the 1st if a deal is not made, and if Biden doesn't cave in to the radicals and literally rip apart his whole agenda. And by the way, one of the, along with the targeting almost everything that Biden achieved in the last two years, they're targeting all attempts to get off the carbon economy into a renewable economy, uh, which just shows you how insane and reactionary they are in terms of dealing with the, the massive crisis of global warming. So uh, let's assume then that, that a deal isn't struck and we reach the, the threshold on June the 1st, either with the coin or with the 14th Amendment. What happens? Let's start with the 14th Amendment. What happens? Biden just says to the Treasury, just pay the bills, right? Is that what happens? That's right. So presumably he would say that I'm going to, to follow the laws. I understand it. Uh, I'm going to spend the money Congress told me to spend. I'm going to honor the debt. You know, which is, of course, part of that and and debt. I mean, how you think of debt, you know, because some people have said, well, that would justify paying interest on the debt, but that doesn't justify the other spending. Well, you, in effect, create a debt when you make the appropriation. So so the appropriations are for things like, well, obviously, Social Security. Um, we've promised people Social Security benefits, but there are also things we have military contractors. I'm not going to defend the military per se, but it, we have a debt to them if they've done the work on a contract. We owe them the money. So that's also a debt. So it's not part of the, the, the federal debt as we think of it in terms of government bonds. But if Lockheed did $200 million of work, we owe them. That's part of our debts. If you have a bankruptcy, that would be part of the debts that would be paid. 
So I would expect that I'm just say, okay, I'm going to spend the money Congress told me to spend. I know they didn't raise the debt ceiling, but I have no alternative. I have to spend the money Congress told me to spend. The Constitution says debts will be honored. That's what I'm going to do. So what would happen with the coin? Walk us through that scenario. So, so the coin would be a similar story, but there'd be a very specific act. So they would have a coin. And, you know, people have joked about it. They're going to put Paul Krugman's face on the coin or uh, Krugman suggested Reagan, whatever, whoever you want. So they'll have some coin and they would present it to the Fed and say, OK, this is a trillion dollar coin. Credit our account. I don't know if they'd make a big public show of that. Or he would just announce that we have minted a copper, a platinum coin, sorry, and we've presented it to the, the the Fed and they've credited our account with a trillion dollars and that will cover our, you know, our, our borrowing needs for the next however, however long. Um, so so that would presumably be, you know, again, I don't know if they'd make a big show or he would just, you know, report on that as an event that happened. I My guess would probably be the latter because. You know, as everyone agrees, this is a stupid gimmick, but it's a stupid gimmick to avoid a cataclysmic uh, economic situation. So, um, so yeah, my guess is he would just announce that it's been done. So both of these scenarios would involve an immediate challenge taken to the Supreme Court by the Republicans. Well, yes, it will involve a court challenge. I assume they would expedite it. You know, I, I shouldn't say assume. I'm sure they would expedite it. So, the way these ordinarily work is they have to go through the district court, then the appellate court and Supreme Court. So I assume the first two would rule very quickly. The Supreme Court would then issue some preliminary ruling, which I would assume would allow it to go through. So in other words, um, we, we always get this. So we had it with the uh, medicated abortion that the Supreme Court said, well, for now, they can continue to, to disperse you know, the uh, medication. Um, just as they had previously, because, you know, the logic being that to disrupt that would be far more, far greater harm than than to uh, rule the other way. So I suspect it would be the same here that they would say, OK, we will let this go through for now as we consider it. And I presume that they would try to rush the uh, the process that uh, I don't know how long they would need, two days, a week, two weeks, you know, presumably have a very uh, rushed process to try and decide what's obviously an incredibly important issue. Well, uh, we've discussed, uh, and, and we did so also in an earlier segment, the damage already done to U.S. foreign policy because of our domestic turmoil. But if you go back to 2011, we didn't escape unscathed. I mean, I, I believe it cost quite a lot of money, and the U.S.'s credit rating was downgraded. So no matter which scenario goes into play or a deal is struck, what economic damage will have been done, do you think, Dean? Well, the big damage in 2011 was that President Obama agreed to, to actual major cuts in spending, and we were recovering very, very slowly. Keep in mind, this is just after the Great Recession. We had a long way to go to get back to anywhere near full employment. So they forced spending cuts that slowed the process of recovery, kept the unemployment rate much higher than need be for many years. So that was the big hit. Now, in terms of our credit standing, it's the sort of thing that's bad, but it's at the end of the day, you go, okay, six months out, are people gonna say, oh, we have to worry about the US not being able to pay its bills? Probably not. I mean, you can vision some scenarios where they might end up saying that. I mean, maybe, um, if we go a day without paying the bills or something like that, then then 
you could envision that having a noticeable lasting impact. But let's say that they resolve this uh, next week. There's some sort of deal, hopefully not involving big concessions on Biden's part. Um, it probably isn't going to have a lasting impact. I mean, if it does, we're talking very small. I mean, you compare the interest we pay on the debt to what other countries like a Germany or Japan pays, um, maybe it'll go up a hundredth, two hundredths, three hundredths of a percentage point relative to what it otherwise would have been. But it's not going to be a big impact that way. Only if we have the really chaotic situation where we actually have some period of time where we're not paying the bills, then we'd see a lasting impact. And, and even there, I don't want to exaggerate it. We're not talking about one or two percentage points. Maybe we're talking about a tenth, two tenths, three tenths of a percentage point, which when you have a debt of uh, $30 trillion, that's that that's not chicken feed, but it's not it's not an end of the world story. And you know what you'd have to say is, you really don't want to do this for nothing. You know, it's a lot of money to throw out just for a silly charade. But just in closing, Dean, you mentioned that if the deal is done to avoid, avert this catastrophe, my understanding is that what makes this deal unlikely is the nature of, he's only got five, a majority of five McCarthy. He's already sold, he's sold to the Freedom Caucus. They seem to control him and not the other way around. And... They're maximalists, so I don't see how you can make a deal that's going to be reasonable when their demands are unreasonable. It's 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 hard to see. So what you'd have a situation where there's a deal Biden can possibly accept, it seems unlikely you'd bring along the whole of the Freedom Caucus, which means you probably could not pass it with just Republican votes. Now, would the Democrats go along with it? So they don't need all the Republican votes, of course. You know, so if Biden signed on to it, I'm sure you'd have the Democrats in the House going along. So they have plenty of votes. But the problem that Speaker McCarthy has is the way they structured the rules. They could turn around the next day, that day, they can say, hey, we're going to have a vote on Speaker. You don't have the votes. You're out. So that would mean essentially McCarthy giving up his speakership. So he's wanted to be Speaker's whole life. So. It's it's a real tough story, um, but um, it's hard to see Biden agreeing to something that the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the House would, would say sign off on. Well, Dean Baker, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks a lot for having me on. And again, I've been speaking with Dean Baker, who's a senior economist and co-founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, a progressive economic think tank based in Washington, D.C., He's the author of Rigged, How Globalization and the Rules of the Modern Economy Were Structured to Make the Rich Richer, and he writes the popular economics blog Beat the Press, where he has an article, Will Biden Invoke the 14th? We can take a brief station break, we're back looking into concerns about Senator Feinstein's ability to carry out her duties, as well as how Biden got into the position that has him negotiating with legislative terrorists. Nothing quite as wonderful as money, 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 money. There is nothing like a newly minted money, 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 money. money. Everyone must hang up all the butchness of a banker. It's accountancy that makes the world go round, round, round. You can keep your watch's ways, for it's only just a phase. Money, 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 money makes the world go round. Money, 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 money. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is David Dayen, who is the executive editor of The American Prospect and the winner of the Ida and Studs Terkel Prize. He's the author of Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud, and Fat Cat, The Steve Mnuchin Story. And his latest book is Monopolized, Life in the Age of Corporate Power. And his latest articles at The American Prospect are the narrative shift of the debt ceiling fight and the Feinstein affair. Senate gerontocracy reaches absurd heights. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Dayen. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, David. And just to touch on uh, the Diane Feinstein story, since she's back in Washington, D.C., I don't know whether you saw the um, interview that the reporter from from Slate and the um, Los Angeles Times as she was being wheeled in a wheelchair through the corridors of the Senate, they said something along the lines of how is it like to be back, you know, you've been gone, etc. And she says, I haven't been gone. And then when they asked her whether she meant that she'd been working from home, she pushed back and said, no, I've been here, she said. And then she got agitated. I've been voting. Please either know or don't know. And I must say, looking at that, it, it did feel like that she's displaying a case of dementia. What was your response to it? I mean, it's it's just really a sad situation. I mean, I uh, have had uh, uh, elders of mine with dementia in, in my family, and I'm sure most people uh, have have seen that as well. And the idea that we would take those people and put them into a high pressure job rather than relieving that anguish and just, you know, uh, allowing somebody else to, to sh- take the burden. It's 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 just crazy. I mean, we're, we're learning more even today that uh, the, the bout of shingles uh, had more complications than we even knew. Uh, her her staff was uh, not forthcoming about the fact that encephalitis was part of uh, the the serious ailments. Uh, th- this, uh, I mean, how many times can it be said? This is it's time for her to to retire and 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 live out her years. Well, indeed, it turns out that she's suffering from what's called Ramsey Hunt syndrome, right. uh, which is characterized by swelling of the brain. And post-shingles encephalitis can leave patients with lasting memory and language problems, sleep disorders, bouts of confusion, mood disorders, headaches, and difficulty walking. And she, of course, is in a wheelchair. But you have to blame the Republicans who, you know, they say there's a lot of comedy in in the U.S. Senate, the best club in the world it's referred to. But the Republicans uh, were were mean. I mean, they wouldn't afford her the courtesy of, of allowing somebody to sit in for on the committees uh, on the specifically on the judiciary committee where democrats want to get through as many judges as they possibly can um you know i mean they they said they wouldn't offer a, a, a republicans said they wouldn't allow a temporary appointment if feinstein retired my strong suspicion is they would have no problem uh appointing her successor to whatever committees they needed to go on to and so, uh, you know, I feel like um, 
the 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 ball is really in Feinstein's court. I mean, uh, and 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 not just with her, obviously, but with her staff and 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 the people around her who are close to her. Uh, it, it's it's really time to to make this decision and 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 take a load off of her. And you know, uh, there there are other implications of that. Obviously, she's not running for re-election. We're going to have a competitive primary here in California for that seat. Um, there are three candidates who are House members who are already running. Uh, the idea that uh, you know, there's a question of who. Uh, Gavin Newsom will appoint. He has promised to appoint a, a African American woman uh, to replace Feinstein. He made that promise uh, years ago. Um, there is an African American woman in the race, Barbara Lee. Uh, there, there. You know, I certainly believe that the voters should pick who the next California senator is going to be, and that you know, uh, Gavin Newsom should find a, a compromise placeholder candidate who, who who pledges not to run so that he's not elevating Barbara Lee uh, in the middle of a, an election. I like Barbara Lee. I, I have no problem with Barbara Lee, of course. But uh, I, I think that the choice should be with California's voters. And typically, when you have this kind of situation and someone retiring midterm, uh, uh, at least in, in, in safe blue seat Senate races, that usually you know, a placeholder gets put in and that's what should happen in this case. Uh, but it's it's a terribly sad situation. Well, there is a political dimension in, uh, involving Nancy Pelosi, who's very, very close to Senator Feinstein, uh, lifelong friends that lived across the street from each other, and Nancy Pelosi's oldest daughter, Nancy Prouder. Yeah. Um, she is this, essentially Diane Feinstein's full-time caretaker. Yeah. And she was the one who was wheeling a, a wheelchair around in the Senate corridors and keep trying to keep the press at bay. And Nancy Pelosi has made it clear that she supports her protege, Adam Schiff, to replace uh, Feinstein. But she doesn't want Feinstein to retire because that will then allow Governor Newsom to put somebody in as a placeholder. Or, But whoever he puts in, particularly if it's a... African-American woman like Barbara Lee, she would therefore have an advantage over Adam Schiff and Katie Porter, who's also running. So yeah, I that's, mean, that's the know, political I, landscape, isn't it? That it is. Uh, but, but Pelosi should honestly be ashamed of herself that she's uh, uh, forcing this uh, woman who had a very distinguished career to continue to serve for her little political uh, uh, maneuvering and engineering. It's, uh, I mean, I don't want to use the word elder abuse, but that's, it, it's a form of it to, to force this poor woman to keep having to serve just because Nancy Pelosi has ideas about who she thinks should, should be a U.S. Senator when the voters should decide that. It shouldn't be Nancy Pelosi's decision whatsoever. So, uh, it, it's, it's, I mean, parts of this are sad, but parts of it are also, frankly, shameful. So, David, Dan, let's turn to your other article at the American Prospect, the narrative shift of the debt ceiling fight. I find it extraordinary. I mean, early in the program, of course, today we were talking about the foreign policy costs that we've already suffered because of the Freedom Caucus extortion forcing Biden to come back early and not go to PNG in Australia. So that's already happened. 
But how did he get into this situation in the first place, negotiating with terrorists? I don't understand why he couldn't have laid down a marker early on, because it's hardly a surprise that they're going to pull this stunt that they're now doing. So I think some history is in order. Uh, the, the debt ceiling has, uh, ever since that statute uh, was uh, put forward in 1917, has been raised hundreds of times uh, uh, under Democratic presidents, under Republican presidents, uh, usually painlessly. People grouse about it, but everybody sort of was working under the common understanding that it was something that had to be done. We, uh, Congress, uh, authorized spending for various items in the budget, and all the debt limit is is finding the money to pay for the spending that they already authorized. This is not new money. This is this is just paying the bills. And uh, for many many years, it was just seen that way. It was seen as sort of distasteful, but something that had to be done and that always got done. Uh, in 2011, this is when we had a change. The Tea Party came in. Uh, Barack Obama was president. And the Tea Party said, we're going to take this debt limit and try to get things put into place that we couldn't otherwise do under normal circumstances. We want massive budget cuts. We want all of these things. We wouldn't be able to get them under the normal course of business. But because we can hold the full faith and credit of the U.S. government hostage, we, we can uh, put ourselves in a situation where we'd be able to get these ideological uh, uh, advances uh, otherwise. And Barack Obama, to his eternal discredit, went along with it. He thought this is a good opportunity for us to do a grand bargain on deficits and debt. He got John Boehner in a room and he tried to put a package together where uh, that would that would reduce the deficit. Now, this was at a time when unemployment was almost, I believe, close to 10 percent. I mean, we were still not recovered from the Great Recession, but there was this idea that we could put all this austerity in place. So uh, that ended up uh, leading to something called budget sequestration, which was a massive amount, amount of budget cuts. It prolonged the agony from the Great Recession. And it did one other thing. It created this uh, idea uh, on the part of the uh, Beltway media and, and, and assorted people that this is just normal politics, that taking hostage the debt limit and saying we're we're not going to pass it unless you give us what we want. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna threaten blowing up the U.S. economy unless you give us what we want. That that's just normal politics. That's something that you're allowed to do. And uh, uh, this has not happened when the shoe is on the other foot. When Democrats were uh, in charge of the House of Representatives and Donald Trump was president, they didn't try to hold the debt ceiling hostage so that uh, Medicare for all or a $15 an hour minimum wage would be passed. They never did that. Uh, however, Republicans, uh, under while as in the run up to the 2022 elections, Republicans said very explicitly, if we win the House, which we think we will, we are going to take the debt ceiling hostage and we are going to ask for massive spending cuts. 
they, they said it out loud. This was not, uh, as you said, this was not a surprise. Um, uh, now, the question is, how did, how did Biden react to that and why have they seemed so unprepared for this hostage taking? I think there was an expectation that because Kevin McCarthy has such a narrow majority, because he, he only has four votes to spare and he has this fractious caucus, that uh, he would never be able to pass a bill. Uh, he'll, he'll never come up with a counteroffer for us. And he'll have to come hat in hand to the White House and say, look, I don't have 218 votes for anything. So, uh, you know, I guess I'll accept whatever it is uh, you, you, you want to give. They thought they could humiliate McCarthy because he wouldn't be able to get his caucus together. Uh, that turned out to be a miscalculation because he, by the barest of margins, passed a bill that represented his bargaining position. It's called the Limit Save Grow Act. It's a massive cut in spending, something like 22% year over year in real terms. Uh, it has all sorts of other extraneous things in it, work requirements for Medicaid and, and, and food stamps, uh, a, a permitting bill that uh, would accelerate fossil fuel infrastructure, just a really awful wish list of all horrible things. And once that passed, the narrative shifted. Uh, it was all of a sudden, well, Republicans did something, now Democrats have to do something, and there have to be concessions. And I think the White House was just completely unprepared for the possibility that McCarthy would get his act together and get something passed. And once he did, they fell back into deal-making mode, and now we're having the negotiation that Biden said he would never have. It's, it's really painful to watch. Because I recall that when Biden presented his budget and showed his cards, he kept saying, you know, in effect, like Jerry Maguire, show me the money, and right. sort of taunting them, right? But it's really backfired and blown up in their face. Yeah, because they did show him. And 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 he didn't really have a counter to that. Uh, it just, you know, the, 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 there was media pressure like, oh, well, you know, they they showed their hand. Now now you have to bargain with them. Uh, the 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 whole concept of bargaining over the debt limit was not it, it, it is not seen as some crazy thing is the crazy thing that it is. The idea that you would, I mean, think about if you had a credit card and you made a bunch of purchases and uh, the, the time for the bill coming due came up and you called your credit card company and said, I'm not going to pay that until you give me ice cream. I mean, that's how silly this is. That's how ridiculous this is. We've already spent the money and now we're trying to change the terms uh, uh, when, when the bill comes due. Uh, and yet the media treats this as a, as a normal thing, as, a, as, as, as just, you know, another day in Washington. It really isn't. But the problem is that I don't think the White House or Senate Democrats took it seriously enough. Uh, and, and, you know, to, uh, last year, Democrats had control of the Senate, control of the House and control of the White House. And they never tried to take the opportunity to 
put the debt limit out of the memory of, of Washington to try to uh, pass it with such a big number that that we would never reach the debt limit again uh, or or do something to, to try to end this hostage taking, which they knew was coming. Uh, there just wasn't a lot of urgency around this. Well, David, Dan, we've run out of time, but, you know, one, one wonders what kind of strategic thinking is going on or not going on in the White House. And uh, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with David Dan, who is the executive editor of the American Prospect and the winner of the Ida and Studs Terkel Prize. He's the author of Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud and Fat Cat, the Steve Mnuchin Story. And his latest book is Monopolized, Life in the Age of Corporate Power. And his latest articles in the American Prospect are The Narrative Shift of the Debt Ceiling Fight and The Feinstein Affair, Senate Gerontocracy Reaches Absurd Heights. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half